months ago, we here at Unorthodox were asked to be part of an important conference at the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. The idea was to celebrate a new book called Jewish Priorities by inviting a bunch of really smart Jews to tell us what we should focus on moving forward. What should our Jewish priorities be? But then October 7th happened, and it seemed like our priorities, really our entire world, completely changed, which only made the conference more urgent. So a while back, we gathered at the beautiful Weizmann Museum in Philadelphia, and we did what Jews do best, especially when times are tough. We talked. We talked about Israel and about Gaza, about Jewish storytelling and Jewish philanthropy, about the environment and religion and everything else that matters right now. The conversations weren't always easy. Sometimes, hey, we're Jews, we disagreed. But the conversations were always provocative and interesting, and we're happy to share them here with you. If you like what you hear, you should check out Jewish Priorities, edited by David Hazoni. And you should also visit the Weizmann Museum in Philly and their truly amazing collection. But now, on to the conversations. There's sort of now this secondary trauma that we're experiencing in the diaspora when we've discovered that there are people in our own, very often our own ideological camp on the left, who think it's okay that we were murdered. And I think that's um, that's important for us to understand right now. It's very clarifying and it helps us understand where we need to go and what we need to do and who's, who our friends are and who our friends aren't. We haven't made this issue sexy. It's cool to give a shit. That's part of my brand and what I do. It's cool to care. Activism is sexy. We haven't made this glamorous. And I know that sounds silly and we shouldn't have to do that because we shouldn't have to do that. But God, it would have worked. Jews are, Jews are famous. Jew, Jews are glamorous. Jews are, this could have been a glamorous issue to keep it alive and cool. And it's not, it's an old lame issue and it shouldn't be. I think that we now have a unique window of opportunity to understand what went wrong with our uh, understanding of uh, progressive spaces and their attitude to Israel and Zionism. Because much of what we hear today, the, the reaction in progressive spaces to the Hamas massacre, the glorification of that massacre or the silence about it, so much of it has to do with the fact that we've ignored for many years and decades the demonization of Zionism and the demonization of Israel. We have allowed for that to progress because we couldn't tell the difference between criticism and demonization. This is Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, and these are some of the voices you'll hear on this panel called Wilderness, Hate, Alliances, Identity. It features panelists David L. Bernstein, Rabbi Shays Rishon, known as Manish Tana, Halel Silverman and Isabella Toporowski, and was moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick. This conversation examined the liberal response to the war in Israel and the fear that a lot of Jews are feeling at this time. I was thinking that since we're in a little bit more of an informal space, instead of introducing you, you each of you could introduce yourself and also tell us a little bit about what these past few weeks have been like for you from your particular vantage point. Um, do you want to start down there? you want to start here? Where do you, who wants to start? Safely no. in the middle. That's the, that's the, the subtitle of this panel, Safely in the Middle. Um, Shays, why don't we start with you? Tell us who you are. I just said no. <laughs> hey guys, uh, Rabbi Shays Rishon. I also uh, write and blog under the name Manish Chana. I've been a writer and speaker on racial and religious identity and how the intersections tend to manifest, particularly around American Judaism, for about 14 years now. 
Hi everyone, I'm Halel Silverman. I am a content creator and liberal activist, liberal Zionist activist uh, living in Israel. Uh, you might know me from uh, being arrested with Woman the Wall about 10 years ago with my mother. I'm part of a proud reform jury. And the last few weeks are the worst weeks of my life. Um, I just got in a few days ago. I did the first 10 days of war at home in Tel Aviv. Um, <laughs> I'm still learning how to talk about it. Um, but I'm really happy to be surrounded by all of you who, who are feeling what we feel back at home. Hello, I'm David Bernstein. Um, a longtime Jewish advocacy professional. I, um, before this, I headed up a umbrella operation that oversees local Jewish advocacy called the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. Uh, a couple years ago, I um, felt that the ideological environment was becoming too extreme in the, on the sort of center left where I've spent my career and um, started a new organization called the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which pushes back against radical left-wing ideology and tries to restore viewpoint diversity to the Jewish world. Um, I authored an uncontroversial book called Woke Antisemitism. And um, the last um, couple weeks have been surreal. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not gonna say too much other than probably I, I wake up in, at like five o'clock in the morning and re reach for my phone to see, to read what happened the night before. And, you know, and I, that hasn't changed. It's just been unbelievable. And um, I'm glad we're able to come together and to talk about it. I'm Isabella Tabarovsky. I write about Soviet anti-Zionism as a precursor to much of what we hear on the left today, the anti-Zionist propaganda that we hear on the left. I grew up in the USSR, and for me, we moved to the United States over 30 years ago, and for me to discover the rhetoric that we're hearing today uh, in the progressive circles about Zionism and Israel, precisely the kind of rhetoric that we used to hear back in the USSR and that we escaped, has been the most devastating thing ever. It makes me angry every day, especially more so, much more so after what just happened in Israel. I moved to Jerusalem three years ago, and as for how it's been, I have to say that I have experienced a sense of vulnerability that I think probably a lot of us feel today. Uh, certainly a lot of Israelis all of a sudden feel. And for the first time in my life, I can say that I, um, I want to have a gun for self-defense, just so, and just so you understand, a lot of Soviet Jews tend to be on the right. I always used to be, I, I am liberal, I am a liberal Jew. Um, never thought that I would ever want to have a gun, but anything, it, it kind of has taken me back to the basics in terms of Zionism, self-defense, right? So that we're not slaughtered, so that we can stand up for, for ourselves. I understand that a lot of these conversations are also happening in America, and I look forward to hearing them as I'm here for a week for the next few days. So you know, this, this panel is called Wilderness, Hate, Alliances, and Identity. And I think this is one of those panels that made sense six months ago when this, this conference was being pulled together, but it's actually so important, so urgent right now. And so I, I wanna sort of prompt us, um, use something that Jody said in the last panel, and I don't wanna misquote her, she is here. Um, I think she talked about, I think it was a crisis of liberal Zionism. I don't wanna, I, I think, how do we, you know, we have people in the diaspora, we have people from Israel here. What do we do about what we're seeing right now 
predominantly on the left. I mean, how do we, what do we do with this discourse that a lot of us have been seeing, many of us for the first time, saying, wait, people <laughs> don't like us. All these people who we've stood with for all of, all of the causes are now really not standing up for us. And so, I mean, Holly, I, I sort of want to start with you. You live your world, you live your life, you, you, you write, you create content in these spaces, um, obviously in an Israeli context, but what does it feel like to see what's happening in the past few weeks, um, on, online, in person, and everything? Yeah, um, very good question. I'm surprised at how surprised I was, because I know better, and I shouldn't have been, and I'm still shocked every video I see of, of women tearing down the, the kidnapped photos, and that, there was one outside my hotel last night when I, checked, when I checked in, and I just started sobbing. It was on the ground, ripped off, and I, we shouldn't be surprised anymore, but we are because we are forgiving and we are loving people and we do expect the best of people. Um, I wish I got my grip together and expected it to happen so I'd be less hurt by it, but I think a lot of what they were saying in the opening plenary is correct. We have to have these hard conversations within the liberal communities because without that, we lose them. And I, I so feel what you said a second ago. I October 7th, by 8 a.m., I said to my boyfriend, I'm like, can you go get your dad's gun? They could be two hours away in Stilot. If someone gets a car, they could be at me in an hour. They could be in Tel Aviv in an hour. We stocked up on food, on toilet paper, on, on everything. And I said, can you go get a gun? And I'm, I'm a registered Democrat. I'm, I'm you know, I'm gun reform. I've never, we need to have those conversations in the hardest spaces. And, and that's why I do what I try to do um, by making content for TikTok, for Instagram, for the liberal spaces, because we, we, we need to fight back where they, where they can hear us on their platforms. Um, so it's conversations and not being afraid even when we're terrified. And, and I mean, David, how do you avoid doing a told you so type of thing? How do you, how do you <laughs> react in this, in this moment? <laughs> it's a good question. I just had a, um, just had a podcast with my, my partner in crime, Brandy Shofatinsky there, um, and we were debating what to call it, and I said, let's, let's make it a question. Maybe we were right, question mark. She wanted to just say we were right. But I, um, but no, like- It doesn't feel good to be right. It does it not feel out. good to be right. Can, can, I, can I read one message I got while we were here from somebody? It was my birthday yesterday. Oh, happy um, birthday. Thank you, thank you. We have a cake coming after this. Right. <laughs> and, um, and she, um, a friend who's in the human service world who would not have lunch with me uh, you know, for a while, um, wrote me this morning, happy birthday, my gift to you is to say you were right. I'm living and breathing woke anti-Semitism every day from my domestic violence and abuse colleagues. It's exhausting. Um, so I don't, I, I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm, I get no pleasure from that. I mean, um, and I wanted to also read you something Rabbi Sharon Browse wrote. It was actually in a speech that was up on the New York Times article two days ago. She said, to justify barbarity in the service of decolonization and the liberation of Palestine requires more than an ideological commitment to Palestinian freedom. It demands mental and emotional contortions that render a person fundamentally unable to see the humanity in a Jew. It requires a deep-rooted association with Jews and power, the Jew as oppressor, the Jew as victimizer. And, you know, I've been warning about this. Um, and, you know, not everybody was willing to even have the conversation. I don't need to be right. But I would like to be in conversation as we are today about it, even if I'm partially wrong or a little wrong. Um, and um, it, it brought me back to a comment that Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the ADL, said. 
he compared anti-Semitism on the right to a hurricane and anti-Semitism on the left to climate change. In other words, anti-Semitism on the right is fast moving, I mean, it's, it's violent, it's immediate, and anti-Semitism on the left is, is corrosive, like climate change, it's slow moving and so forth. Now, from what we've seen in the last two weeks, it seems like we're dealing with a hurricane and then some on the left as well. But um, what he doesn't do, and what I think we need to start doing, is talking about the ideological CO2 emissions that produce the climate change on the left. Like, if we don't name them, if we can't bring ourselves to say a certain W word or some other word, I don't care what word we use it, if we can't name what it is because we are worried about offending allies or we're worried about losing donors, then we're not going to fight it effectively. And so I don't care about being right. What I do care about is trying to move the Jewish community in a direction where we can start to have this conversation. Well, and I want to add that I, I think the reason that the last two weeks have produced this kind of a hurricane is because of all of the work that had gone into it over the decades, really starting with, with the late 60s, and it just continued and continued. You know, this ongoing demonization of Zionism and Israel, not only permitted, but even encouraged and viewed as a sign of your being a good leftist or whatever it is, a good progressive. I mean, that is, we would not tolerate demonization of Jews if the word Jews was used, but we're tolerating demonization of Zionists, of Jews as Zionists. But, and again, for me, it's like, for David, you know, I also feel like, I, I've been trying to say this, and I've been trying to warn this through my articles, which I mostly publish in tablet, and, and uh, my heart is broken, like I have not a second of schadenfreude, my heart is broken to see all of this come true and to read uh, confessions of progressive Jews saying, how is it that the left has abandoned us? And I wanna say, how is it that you didn't know, really, my dear, it's been a century of the left betraying the Jews, of Jews stay, standing by the left, and the left betraying the Jews. And education is a, such a crucial part that's missing here. You know, we can have these conversations in reference to the first panel. We can have respectful conversations, but there are massive gaps of knowledge that need to be filled. I'm Dara Horn. If you know me and my work, you know that I love teaching people the amazing stories of living Jewish culture and heritage, and not just all the bad stuff that happens to us. I've been working with the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History to develop an in-school curriculum to do just that. We're piloting it now in public schools. If you want to help bring an antidote to anti-Semitism into your kids' schools, contact the Weizmann's educators at theweitzman.org slash Dara. a lot of Jews on this panel right now talking about feeling unsafe, wanting, considering, you know, weapons, right? S considering different types of self-defense. The subtitle of your book, Thoughts from a Unicorn, it's 100% black, 100% Jewish, 0% safe. So can you walk us through what it f maybe feels like, I don't, to, to hear 
Jews have these sort of conversations and say, I don't feel safe anymore, and from your vantage point. Um, well, first to comment on the subtitle of my book, it is 100% black, 100% Jewish, 0% safe. Um, but what I mean is that I'm the thing that's not safe for everyone else, not that I'm the one that isn't safe from other people. Uh, but when it comes to conversations like this, I think there need to be three sort of grounding principles before we even get into the conversation. One, multiple things can be true at the same time. Two, multiple things can be wrong at the same time. Three, explaining how a mechanism works doesn't absolve from accountability. Um, so when I hear, I've heard a lot of like heartbreak and hurt from I guess feeling betrayed from like the left or, or liberalism and even though that's a space that I navigate in most of the time, I don't identify myself as a leftist or liberal or conservative or anything else. What I am is a Jew and this isn't a, a high horse kind of whatever or a value judgment to anyone else who uh, feels identity with a political identity, but as a Jew, as an Orthodox Jew, Torah is a thing, right? And there's times when Torah is liberal, there's times when it's conservative, there's times when it's socialist, there's times when it's communist. Inherently, it's theist. So to lock yourself into a finite, subjectively moral, political identity of the moment is to, in my opinion, inherently put your politics on a collision course with your Judaism. And I think that's what we're sort of seeing here. Uh, the sort of sense of unsafe or where are we uh, I think that's also why it's important to have these kind of panels and conversations because there's a lot of talk of, oh, Israel, the only safe place we have, or when things get hot here in America, at least we have Israel. Who's the we that has Israel? Some of us can't get on the plane unless we can quote our bar mitzvah and have like a bronze cast of our foreskin. <laughs> um, <laughs> later. Yeah, so, delivered, but heartbreaking, <laughs> all the same. I've, I've had several use of Jewish color friends talking about how they couldn't buy a ticket at El Al unless they brought like their Jewish mother who was biracial like, to prove to them. Uh, when I was married, my wife, uh, when she was having like the full body sort of shakedown, uh, they wanted to uncover her hair. It's like, really, it's El Al. You don't understand the concept of Orthodox married Jewish women because they're slightly darker. Uh, even here, in these kind of uh, spaces, I'm sitting here with, well, I was sitting here with a tag on, little blue sticker, says I'm an author. Someone asked me what brought me here. Uh, <laughs> Jews make up 0.2% of the American population. Jews of color make up to 10 to 20% of the Jewish population. Proportionally speaking, Jews of color make up more of the Jewish population than Jews make up of America, yet we don't have anywhere near the same kind of visibility. If we're 20%, I haven't looked through the gallery here, but this is an American museum of Jewish history. Is 20% of it looking like me? Looking like Asian Jews, Hispanic Jews, etc. And so we have these conversations. If we're going to talk about the priorities of the Jewish future, it has to be a fully inclusive Jewish future of all the Jewishes, not just the ones that we think have safety here, or now this is a crisis there. It's always a time. It's always a crisis. Every problem is a Jewish problem because Jews are a multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic family. Every issue affects Jews. Hold for applause. You know, I think 
that's something that struck me. You know, the, the reason we're all here is, is this book, Jewish Priorities, which actually was in all of your tote bags um, downstairs. A few people were wondering where they were, and I was like, that's why your tote bag is so heavy. Um, both two of your pieces, David and Isabella, were about the new Cossacks and the new Refuseniks, these phrases that you are sort of reviving for us. So I would like for each of you to tell us what that means, what you mean by that, and how the many ways in which Jewish history is what are these, these reasons we should be learning Jewish history so that we can see it either repeating or it, it can inform us um, on how we understand the present. So Isabella, you wanna, should we do Refuseniks first and then get to Cossacks? Sure, sure. So, so first I wanna say um, we want to understand the history of Soviet Jewry and Soviet anti-Zionism for the same reason that we learned the history of Nazi Germany and Nazi anti-Semitism. I think we all understand very clearly that we need to understand that history of Nazi Germany so that we can understand the forms of anti-Semitism that appear today on the neo-Nazi right, on white supremacist right, uh, because it helps us. It helps us forestall and prevent and communicate the messages about the danger of that form of anti-Semitism. If we don't know the history of Soviet anti-Zionism, uh, then we might actually believe that the rhetoric that we're hearing about Zionism and Israel today is a product of organic protest, of organic, you know, uh, speaking truth to power, to the Zionist power and whatever you have it, right? It, it, these are phrases that Zionism is racism, is something that a few young activists I I invented on, I don't know, on a progressive campus somewhere. That is not the case, and it's crucial to understand this because there is a lot of thought by professional propagandists that went into developing the idea that Israel is reminisce is that Israel equates with apartheid South Africa, or with the, that Israel is a colonial state, or that Zionism is fascism, and that Zionists collaborated with the Nazis, and also that um, Zionists. Uh, twist accusations or misuse and weaponize accusations of anti-Semitism in order to deflect attention from the crimes of the state of Israel. You see, like all of these things that we're hearing today, you encounter them in Soviet literature, propaganda literature, already in the 1960s, okay? And so if we don't get that massive plast of history, we are left thinking that, wow, this is really, we, you know, these are well-meaning protesters trying to change uh, a really horrible and unfair situation. Now, as for Refuseniks, uh, the, another part of why Soviet Jewry is so important, and this is something that American Jews used to know really, really well, uh, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people here in the room who used to be part of the movement for Soviet Jewry. But the, the, the Soviet Jewry story is not just a story of victimhood. It is also a story of incredible heroism, of a few people standing up to a massive totalitarian regime, standing alone often with just a few people, right? People like Natan Sharansky standing up and saying, no, we don't believe it. No, we don't buy into it. No, we're not going to go with it. And I think that there is... Um, it, the, we need to start telling these stories because for people like myself, and I know that for other people who came from the Soviet Union, the stories of dissidents who stood up to that machine are very much part of our motivation to stand up here and speak now. Uh, and they give us strength because if you could be Natan Sharansky and spend eight years in the gulag and refuse, refuse to accept what the authorities are telling you, well, how much easier is it for us here in the United States? So, the new Cossacks. 
Um, so Jews are really generally good at understanding who constitutes a threat. Um, you know, I think it's probably one of the secrets of our survival that we can look and say that person probably is dangerous or that group is probably dangerous. But I think we've been much better at it when it comes from what we recognize as the extreme right fascism than we have at totalitarianism and, and what's perceived as the left. Um, you know, there were a lot of Jew, Jews involved in the Communist Party even after Stalin murdered millions of people. Um, Daniel Gordas said we're, we're like a moth drawn to the burning flame. Um, and I think there's a reason for it, and I think it's more acute in the United States than it is, for example, in our neighbor up north, Canada, or almost any other diaspora Jewish community. Um, we have a special relationship to the left. You don't see that in Canada. You don't see that in Australia as much or the UK as much. Um, I think it's because we found safe harbor in the great coalitions of the civil rights movement and believe that's where we could find safety. And, um, and that has, in a way, probably created a blind spot for us. We're not able to see that there are Cossacks, perhaps on the left as well, that we've seen in no, no uncertain terms, um, these Cossacks on, on the left. And um, we're confronting them now, maybe in ways that we, we, we didn't before. And so we have to, I think this is going to be very hard because once you acknowledge that, and you acknowledge they didn't come from nowhere, it, it grew up just like, Anti-Semitism on the right is packaged as part of larger ideologies. Anti-Semitism on the left as well. And once you acknowledge that, you have to start to ask yourself certain questions. Like, who are our friends? And a lot of times when we have conversations about this, about who should be at the table, I think we always start with, well, who's, who shouldn't be at the table? You know, okay, the, the person who says, I hate Israel, shouldn't be at my table, fine. The person who says, um, anybody who's ever uttered the word woke shouldn't be at my table, that would be me. Um, fine, fine. But we don't ask ourselves enough, what tables should we be at? What tables should, should we either proactively find or should we create ourselves? And I think there are tables that we need to create. These are people who care about liberal values and open discussion and machloket l'shem shemayim, arguments for the sake of heaven. These may be Asian allies that we don't know yet or black parents who don't want their kids to be taught that the system is rigged against them. These are, these are people that we need to get to know and we need to start to organize ourselves. And I think there's new tables to be created in this current environment, but it, but it first starts with understanding the nature of the threats so we know what tables to create. So I think a lot of us, um, actually, let's raise your hand if you've spent too much time on social media in the past two weeks. That is most hands in this room. Halil, I have a question for you because I find myself doing this thing where you're like, who's posting, right? Like, who's posting about Israel? Who's, who's and not? And who's not? And who's not? And then also, who's posting what? <laughs> and, you know, who's posting the thing that says, I stand with Israel, but I hate BB, or I stand with Israel, but I'm opposed to the, you know, I, I, I find myself replying to people, especially late at night, saying, by the way, Israel hasn't, there is no occupation. Like, I, I, I find myself picking like just the smallest things and of well-meaning posters right like people who are genuinely trying and they're reposting something that an influencer they're like shared but there's like three lines in there that aren't actually correct I mean what do we do as as citizens as citizens of the internet and of the world when we see both the people who aren't posting what can we say to them and say you know by the way 
or I'll ask you actually what we should say, if, if and what we should say to them, people we know, people we don't know. And then what do we say to well-meaning people who are posting things but are sort of like bending themselves into this strange thing to make the right post that says, yes, this was bad, but this, 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 and this. I mean, what do we, what do, we do in this unprecedented online landscape? Um, all I can do is give you advice that I've been learning to do the last few weeks because, as you said, this is unprecedented. And even those of us who work online in this field with Israel, even when it isn't war, are adapting to this new reality. Um, first off, as you said, only well-intentioned people that want to learn because you can't let that energy into your energy and you can't waste hours of your life speaking to people that just want you dead, that don't want to learn, right? So I think just putting that aside and to the well-intentioned people on... Um, we need to remember that this is a long-term battle. This is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And we cannot be wearing ourselves out. I think it's really wise to, to forward well-produced well sliders and, and info and reels from people that are doing this 24-7. You don't have to explain every little bit yourself. Take the resources that are being provided by the Jewish community that are on TikTok and on Instagram. I don't want any of you to feel like you have to re-explain why, why if you say but at the end of the massacre, it's not okay. You don't have to recreate that wheel each time. There's a lot of resources out there, and we do that to create it for you so you don't have to. Um, and it's really absurd. Hamas GoPro'd their massacre, and people are still asking for proof. Any other people? Any other people? That wouldn't be the, that wouldn't be the case. There was no proof taken, uh, asked for when the Islamic Jihad or Hamas confirmed that the hospital was hit, and that was inaccurate. They were used as a news source. It's like using ISIS as a news source. I am so angry and I try so hard to not let that come through because it would hurt my discussions with people online. Um, I think whether you know them or not, it's always nice to drop into someone's DM before bashing them because a lot of the time they don't mean to be inaccurate or incorrect or to hurt you with that butt at the end. I, I think it's good for us to, to try to rise above and DM someone when they're wrong before just jumping into that comment section for everyone to see. I think there's a level of respect that will be appreciated there. And all of our tensions are so high, we can't, we can't think clearly. But that won't help us. So it's a battle, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And to rely on the sources that are given to you, the resources that are created for you. Any other advice on dealing online or off <laughs> with conversa difficult conversations these past few weeks from other panelists? I like unpopular opinions. <laughs> um, and by that I mean it goes back to the uh, multiple things can be true, wrong, and explaining how mechanisms work doesn't accept from accountability. So I want to first spring back off something you said. We were talking about uh, Jews. We found like uh, a solace in the civil rights movement. And there's a lot of narrative about, you know, the breakdown between blacks and Jews in the civil rights movement. But we need to examine that. When you say the Jews left the civil rights movement, which Jews? Charles McDew didn't leave. Black Jewish organizer of SNCC. Julius Lester didn't leave. Black Jewish civil rights lecturer. So which Jews are we talking about? And that goes to the tables. I feel a lot of the seeds of the responses that we see and uh, the support for Hamas were planted back in 2014, 2016, when the majority of American Jewish mainstream did not show up for Black Lives Matter. 
Now, the left is great at, you know, white horsing or let's help those communities over there. But like I said before, these are all Jewish issues. So it's great, oh, let's fight against, you know, undocumented immigrants. Well, that's a Jewish issue, Jewish. Jews are affected by that because Jews are undocumented. Um, uh, stop and frisk, that affects brown people who are Jews. Police profiling affects brown people who are Jews. But when you look at it, oh, we're helping those people over there, then at least you step away from issues sometimes. Oh, we don't need to deal with that. So when Black Lives Matter first came around in 2014, the first people that showed up to the table were pro-Palestinian groups. And then when Jews eventually did join the table, they were um, anti-Zionist Jews. Because all throughout that time, American Jews like, oh, you should follow laws. You know, if you, yeah, uh, don't shoot, don't read all those, uh, the black, the blue lives matter as rhetoric back. And since Jews there weren't during the tables there, they weren't having conversations with people who were liberal and Zionists. They weren't having conversation with everyone else because Jews didn't show up to the table. So that's something that we also need to have in mind if we're trying to think of priorities for the Jewish future. We're not just building allies of different communities because of the non-Jews in those communities. There are also Jews there. We're also helping the people that are in our pews. So we need to stop looking at it as, oh, over there, we're, we're doing tikkun olam, over you're, you're repairing inside the house. Like it's come, the call is coming from inside the house. to celebrate Jewish American Heritage Month this and every May. I take every chance I get to celebrate everything that's great about Jewish heritage and culture. I take pride in how America's Jewish community in all its forms has both shaped and been shaped by our nation. Now is a great time to remind ourselves and share with our neighbors just how vibrant and wonderful the stories of American Jewish life are. No matter your religious beliefs, your political affiliation, your age, or your favorite podcast, JAHM is something we can all lift up together. Learn how at jewishamericanheritage.org. No, I think that some of my friends um, who are the most surprised and shocked and disappointed are those people who in 2020 were out there and were saying, this is a huge problem and we need to deal with it as Jews. Tons of Jews, Jewish organizations were involved. And I think that the people, I think that a lot of Jews feel like we are standing up for, I guess other groups may be part of the, prop, the, the, the mental problem there, but you know, everyone's like, we put the Ukraine flag on our Facebook. Like oh, we were doing all the things that society says that we're supposed to do to be good people. And then I think a lot of the, the loneliness, and that was actually gonna be my next question for all of you, the loneliness that people are feeling now when it's, it's actually quite silent when it comes to stand up for, for Jews in, in such a stark, bad thing that happened to Jews. And so I wanted to ask all of you, before we open this up um, to questions, because I imagine our audience has a bunch, um, Wilderness, that's the name of this panel. The <laughs> Wilderness is lonely, it's not, you know, we're, we're all in it, but it can feel like a lonely place. And I, I want to ask all of you, 
what do you do when you feel lonely? I think a lot of us in this room do feel lonely. Um, wh wherever we identify on any of the political, religious, anything, any of those spectrums, what do we do when we feel lonely? Who, who are you turning to? Who can we be, what can we be doing? Besides calling each of you um, and WhatsApping you. Well, we can find friends. And I mean, I mean that obviously on the individual level, you know, it's great to be in spaces like this where I know there are people who are going through a similar sort of emotional journey as I am. And I certainly feel a deep need for that and have felt a deep need for that. And, uh, you know, on my various WhatsApp groups and sending each other articles like, like crazy. And I think that's part of my coping. And I'm sure many of you feel that way as well. We're, we're coping with people who are coping. Um, but in a larger sense, you know, I, I was in the spaces that, that you were talking about. I, I created it with, through my organization, Jews for Criminal Justice Reform, for example. And um, what happened to me was that all of a sudden the people that I was trying to work with as the ideological environment started to shift, started to say, unless you agree with me that America is a white supremacist state and you describe America in precisely the way that I do, this is not a coalition for you. And I don't want to be part of that coalition, um, even if it means not being at the table with the people that I could influence because, because I'm not willing to pay that pound of flesh, which I just don't, it's not that it's wrong, it's just that I don't agree with it. And, and I want to be, and I don't want to say something I disagree with to be part of a coalition, even though black lives matter. And, um, and so for me, my dealing with that loneliness that came when I had to sort of sever myself from a progressive community was to say, okay, who are the people who are, come from other communities, both inside the Jewish community but outside the Jewish community, who are my new friends that, I, that don't demand that pound of flesh from me? Who are the Asian American leaders and the black leaders and um, the Latino leaders? And I have to tell you, I've discovered a treasure of friends that I didn't know existed before, who are emerging, who are still finding their voice. And very often, they, they're not actually a minority voice in their own community. Very often, they actually represent a huge plurality in their community, but they haven't organized along that way. And we have, we have friends, and that's one way, and exploring that, that's one way we, we deal with our own loneliness. You're looking at me. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, I do think very much that this is a moment for us to, to turn to our people, right? This is a moment to deepen our Jewish identity. And in this, I, I again turn to the example of the Refuseniks who, in the moment when they faced some of the greatest anti-Semitism, they turned to their Jewish identity to try to understand why is it that I'm hated so much as a Jew? Now, we have to say that their starting point was probably much lower because in the Soviet Union, of course, everything Jewish had been eliminated by the 1960s. So they had to really dig deep to understand the Jewish history, to understand their Jewish identity, to understand what Judaism is. But in some ways, you know, some American Jews have said to me that, you know, we're not that far ahead, you know. So for a lot of people, there is a lot of, 
a lot of exploration to be done, and I would say a lot of exploration of Zionism as well, because I think this is a moment when the original thinkers of Zionism will speak to a lot of us with a new force. Um, and I think that also it's a time for us to look beyond our political affiliations. I know that especially for those of us who have always considered ourselves to be on the left, you know, speaking to someone across the aisle has been a real anathema, and I think we need to stop doing it. I've realized that there are so many voices. I've been thinking about it for a long time, but especially now, whatever inhibitions I might have had, they're just, they don't matter. You know, there are many conservative voices, so many conservative voices that support us. So wherever you are on the political spectrum, look for friends, wherever they are, they are showing up, just as David said. Friends. I, I want to jump friends. off that. <laughs> I want to jump off that. That was so, um, I mean, us back in Israel physically, we, you know, we went from eight, nine months of this intense protest movement, uh, which I've, I was heavily involved in, uh, happily, proudly so. And the second October 7th, 6 a.m. happened, that doesn't matter anymore, right? We are first and foremost the Jewish people. And we have to love each other and fight together. And when we have the privilege of time to work on our country and make our country better, great. But the, the way we banded back, everyone from the, the anti-protesters to the protesters, friends I don't agree with on that, we're all together in this. And it was so immediate and it was so beautiful. And I mean, us physically, Blake, I'm looking at you, like the first 10 days of war, we had a little hub going. Everyone was sleeping on my couches. We were just physically together because it was terrifying. I had a bomb shelter and relying on that. I mean, the sense was very physical, and like, but it, it, it helped so much. I mean, we're all crying, we're all tweeting, but having people around you physically for that scary time is everything. So, I mean, replicating that here in the US, as you hear the news, as you watch the news, if you don't usually do Shabbat dinner, go do Shabbat dinner. Have that Jewiness, you know, and, um, and as you were saying, political differences just don't matter right now. It's about our safety and continuation of the Jewish people. So that thing about not mattering and safety. Funny. As an Israeli who's trying to not die, I'm not talking about American politics. Yes. I'm talking about Israeli. Uh, so I, I, that's why I want to piggyback off that to speak on the loneliness where I love those. You sound like great heartwarming stories. After the attacks, I went to shul and I was stopped by security. And, and they're like, are you here for service? I'm like, why else would I be here? Are you Jewish? Why else would I be here for services? You don't look Jewish. What doesn't look Jewish about me? I can't what looks Jewish, guys? I can't see your kippah. No one else in the shul is wearing a hat. So, it's different on this side of the uh, <laughs> yeah. this side of the line. And speaking as Jew of color, and again as an Orthodox Jew, the fact we don't have rest in Israel because we haven't actually gotten out of Galut. And the reason why we got out into Galut, into exile, is because of the same Sinat Chinam, that when things like this happen to the Jewish community, and part of us want to show up in solidarity, we get turned away at the door. And so if we have that internally running, we can't ever externally have harmony. I love that you said that my chapter is about choosing Avat Israel over Sinat Chinam and being one people. And I really connected to what you wrote about a mosaic. We're a mosaic. We're a beautiful mosaic. And it, it only comes together all at once, but we need all of it. Also, it's a pun. Mosaic. Mm -hmm. 
This has been Jewish Priorities, Life After October 7th, a podcast produced by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, in conjunction with Unorthodox and Tablet Studios. If you like the show, you should check out the book Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. The panels were moderated by me, Stephanie Butnick, along with my Unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. The podcast was edited by Quinn Waller. Thank you so much for listening. 